Let us start in God's Word this morning to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Throughout most of this psalm, it's going to be spoken from the perspective of the psalmist. But then in the 14th verse, there's going to be a change of perspective. It's no longer the psalmist speaking in the first person, but God speaking. So take note of that shift between verses 13 and 14. Psalm 91, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Thus far we read God's holy And in Aaron's word, may God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. It's on the basis of Psalm 91 and many other passages of scripture besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 34. Lord's Day 34, question 92, what is the law of God? The answer, God spake all these words in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, which we will not reread, for we have read the law already this morning. 
Question 93. How are these commandments divided into two tables, the first of which teaches how we must behave towards God, the second, what duties we owe to our neighbor? What doth God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of mine own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God, to trust in him alone, with humility and patience submit to him, expect all good things from him only, love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is, instead of or besides, that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we begin treating one after another the Ten Commandments given to us by God through Moses at Mount Sinai. You recall that the Israelites had been delivered from out of Egypt, where they were slaves. God had delivered them through the Red Sea, given unto them that powerful and gracious deliverance. He had drowned the ensuing Pharaoh and his hosts in that same Red Sea. The Israelites had traveled down in a southerly direction, and God had led them unto Mount Sinai. Moses alone went up Mount Sinai. There was thunder, there was smoke and lightnings. The Israelites were to sanctify themselves at the base of Mount Sinai, as Moses went up and God gave unto him the two tables of the law, etched on stone as an indication of the fact that this law would be forever lasting. So not just throughout the Old Testament, but as well in the New Testament, the law of the Lord remains the same. And this law that God gave to the Old Testament Israelites, he gave them a list of prohibitions, a number of things that they were not to do, and and on the other hand, things that they were to do. But what we must see at, at the outset here, before we look specifically at the Ten Commandments, is that these commandments are far more than a simple list of moral obligations that we owe to a divine God. We must not view the law of God as simply a 
a code. This is how you are to live on this earth. Do this, don't do that. If that's how we would understand the law, that it's simply a list of obligations that we as Christians have upon this earth, then the law is... It turns into just a moralism. Then there's no gospel. But the law is far more than simply teaching us how we are to conduct ourselves on this earth. To be sure, it is that. And there is weight in the law. God comes with authority as he brings us this law. But it's more than just God telling us this is how we are to arrange our lives on this earth. But what else is there in the law? Well, that God himself reveals His own heart, His own mind, His own will unto the creature. As God comes to us with these ten laws, these ten rules, God is opening Himself up to us so that we can know Him and worship Him in His holiness. And so let us this morning then as we open God's Word and see this first commandment, let us see not only what what duty we have to submit to this commandment, but let us as well see how great Our God is, who with authority comes to you this morning and says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No other gods. First, we'll see what is revealed. Second, what is commanded. And third, what is needed. What do we learn about Jehovah God, as he opens himself up to the creature and says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do we not learn in the first place, beloved, that Jehovah is God and there is no other God besides Jehovah God. It is the one true God who alone has the right to come to the creature and demand of that creature that they give their exclusive love, their exclusive trust to that divine being. If there were several gods, if God was not one but three, 
Then God would not be able to say, Thou shalt have no other gods besides me, for then it would be required of us that we worship God number one and God number two and God number three. But the fact that God has the right to come unto us and demand of us that we worship Him and worship Him only indicates to us that God is one. That God is one, God means, beloved, in the first place, that God is not composed of many different parts. It is not as if you can take Jehovah God and, and break Jehovah God down into different parts and then say that the sum total of all of these parts equals Jehovah God. It's not as if part of God is love and part of God is grace and part of God is justice and part of God is holiness. And then if you take all of these parts or these attributes of God and total them all up, then the result is here is now Jehovah God. God is one. The indivisible God. We must remember this truth. Times we can speak that way as if God is divisible when there's an act of justice that's performed by God. Well, then we can speak of the holiness of God as if God is being holy in that act, but not being merciful. In that act. The justice of God is a merciful justice. And the mercy of God is a just mercy. Always God is just. Always God is merciful. So the oneness of God, the fact that there is but one God, means that God is one within Himself. But then it also means that God is one outside of Himself. He is God and God alone, and there is no other God besides Him. The Scriptures declare the fact that God alone is God. Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 5 records the law. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses gives a summary of that law, and he says there in verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. The fact that there is but one God is stated as well in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. It is not the case that Jehovah God is the highest of other gods. It is not the case that Jehovah God is in a category of gods that is altogether beyond other categories of 
gods. But Jehovah is God and God alone. Man either will worship Jehovah God or man will worship a different God. But always man worships a God. That's part of how the Lord has created us. He has shaped us in such a way that we long and we yearn to worship God. In the strictest sense of the word, there is no such thing as an atheist. For an atheist claims that there is no God and thus he is not going to worship any God. But that is not and that cannot be the case because of how the Lord has shaped us. Either we are worshiping Jehovah God or we have turned to a false God. No other gods before me. What else do we learn? What else does God reveal about himself in this first commandment? We learn as well in this commandment that God is a personal, a loving being. And that comes out in the language that God uses here as God through Moses addressed and continues to address his people. He uses personal language, thou, you, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The fact that God uses the first person personal pronoun, me, indicates he's a person. And the fact that God does not want his people to go worship other gods but demands of them that they worship him and him only indicates that God is a God of love. He desires the affection, the praise, the attention of his people. God comes to us in this first commandment not as an abstract, not as a vague or an impersonal force, but he comes to us as a real person. So we must be careful then in the way in which we speak of God. Not merely ascribing events of creation as being due to some power of providence or being due to mother nature, but it's God person who performs these things. God is not a heartless king who sits on a distant throne, who has no understanding, no care, no love for the subjects of his kingdom. God is not like Baal. Remember Baal? was evidently unmoved by the cries of the prophets as they danced and as they leaped upon the altar and even went so far as to cut themselves, trying to get the attention of Baal so that he would send fire down to consume that altar. But Baal did not respond 
to the cries of his people. God is a person. He is a person who has real emotions. He loves and he grieves. He rejoices and he is filled with anger. He is devoted to his people with a personal, loving care. The psalmist speaks of the care of God over his people. Psalm 91, verse 11. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. It's a person. Let's always remember that. It's a real, loving person who comes to you and to me and who says, no other gods before me. And then third, what do we learn about God from this first commandment? But we see the reality that there are other gods, lowercase g, other gods who are not true gods, but who are false gods. This does not deny the earlier point when we stated that there is but one God. Jehovah is God, and there is no other God besides him. Earlier when we said that there is only one God, we spoke of the one true God. Now we are recognizing the fact that there are many false gods, many imposters, many who would be God, many who set themselves up as God, many who portray themselves to large numbers of people as if they are God, many who make promises to those who follow them, if you worship me, if you give unto me your attention, and your love and your devotion, I will give unto you much happiness in return. Many who would pretend to be God, but who are not God. How many are these false gods? There is the God of silver and the God of gold. The God today that we would call materialism. Worship this God, give yourself to us being a slave of this God, worship that dollar, strive as hard as you can to get more money. And this God promises you, I will make you happy. There's the God of popularity, which is a slave to the admiration and the respect of other people. Worship this God and you will do whatever anyone else wants of you in order that you might gain their respect and have their popularity. How tempting that God is to the young people and to older people. There is the God of self-care. It's a popular God in today's world. Prioritize yourself. Take care of yourself first. 
before you take care of anyone else and have any concern for anyone else. Take care of yourself for this purpose, says the God of self-care, in order that you might be happy. It's all about your joy and your happiness. This is not to say that it is wrong to take care of oneself. We are called to take heed unto ourselves, our souls, as well as our bodies. There's a distinction between taking heed to oneself and worshiping the God of self-care. What other false gods are there? Basically anything can be a false god. Any good thing which is given too much attention, too much importance in one's life can become a false god. A hobby. Something that takes one's interest on nights and weekends can become a false god. Marriage, parenting, good and wholesome things can become a false god. How different these false gods are from Jehovah God. Jehovah God is the omnipotent God. These false gods are impotent. Hands have they, but they handle not. Eyes have they but they see not promises they give to those who follow them, and yet they never follow through on those commitments. That's how you can distinguish a false god from Jehovah God. Jehovah's God is yea and amen. If Jehovah God promises that he will give something, then Jehovah God performs that which he says he will do, but the false gods always set before you that lure, that trap of if you follow me, if you worship me, then I will give unto you what you want. And yet you are never satisfied after having worshiped that false god. The only thing that that false god leaves you with is a sense of yearning, a sense of desiring more. And so that one who turns to the God of the bottle, the alcohol bottle, that bottle promises him joy and happiness. He turns to that bottle, and yet that bottle never gives him what he wants. So then that false God commands the slave of the bottle, come to me again, come again and again and again. That's the deceptiveness of false gods. Give more. And eventually you'll get something in return. How different is the true God who gives, who gave his only begotten Son that we might be redeemed? Does your God give? Or does your God take?
That's the difference between Jehovah God and false gods. Does your God give or does your God take? This one true God comes to his people. He demands of his people no other gods. In this first commandment, Jehovah God prohibits all forms of idolatry. Answer 94 speaks of this. What doth God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry. And then the Catechism lists out several different forms of idolatry. Sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, vocation of saints. Sorcery is the belief in magic. It was a prevalent struggle throughout the Old Testament. Think of Saul going to the witch at Endor, thinking that she could magically assist him. And there's soothsaying. Soothsaying is the perceived ability to predict the future. Somebody who claims that they can read the stars and tell you what the future is. Somebody who will look into a glass ball and tell you what's going to happen tomorrow in your life. Soothsaying. Both sorcery and soothsaying are forms of superstition. Superstition. That's the belief that there is a power, another power besides Jehovah God. So, for example, some who fear the number 13, which is why oftentimes if you've ever been in a tall building, take the elevator up, the 13th floor is missing. They go from 12 to 14. And the reason is the superstition that 13 is evil. It's bad luck. The superstition of coming across a black cat on a moonless night. The superstition of the evil that comes with salt that is spilled on the table. These are all beliefs that there is some power, any power, oftentimes an evil power, besides Jehovah God. And then the Catechism speaks of invocation of saints or any other creatures, a practice that was common in, still is common in Roman Catholicism. The way that one approaches Jehovah God is through saints. And so you pray through St. Mary, St. Joseph, Peter, or Paul, and praying through them, you're able to pray unto Jehovah God. And so the question then that we face this morning is, are we free from breaking the first commandment? For having read through this list in the Heidelberg Catechism, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints. Most of us could go right down that list and check it off and say, oh, that's not particularly a temptation for me. 
And that's not a temptation for me. And I've never hired someone to predict the future in my life, so I'm doing pretty good. The Catechism does not stop there. The Catechism goes on to teach us that at the heart of what God prohibits in this commandment is misplacing our trust. When God comes to us and says, no other gods before me, God is prohibiting us from putting our trust in anyone or anything besides him. Answer 95. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Where are our idols found? It's not as easy as times throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you could find the idol right in their home. There's that image. There's that statue. It's right in the home alongside of them. You could go in the tent of the Israelites and search that tent and see if you could find their idols in the tent. In the New Testament, where are our idols? They're right in our hearts. Nobody can see them. Someone could come into our homes and search, and they might see no evidence of idols, but they're in our souls. Trust. Whom do you trust? And whom do you follow? The Catechism is not teaching us here that we are forbidden from trusting anyone else. There must be trust in relationships. Marriages don't work unless there's trust between husband and or why and wife. But what the catechism forbids us from here is from trusting anyone besides instead of Jehovah God. If all of my trust is in my spouse, and I believe that my spouse is going to make me happy, and I believe that my spouse is going to meet my every need, and instead of putting my trust in Jehovah God, I withdraw my trust and place my trust in the creature then we have become guilty of making an idol in our hearts. Positively then, what is required in this first commandment? What God calls us to do is to know Him, to love Him, and to trust Him. Know, love, and trust. Catechism in the second half of answer 94 speaks of this. Learn rightly to know the only true God. Trust in Him alone. With humility and patience, submit to Him. Expect all good things from Him only. Love, fear, 
and glorify him with my whole heart. Know him. Let your knowledge of him be a knowledge that is according to truth. Psalm 91, verse 4, the second half, we read, His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. The truth of God is revealed unto us in the Holy Scriptures. That's how we know God and how we keep this first commandment, by being a student of the Scriptures that God has given unto us. Know Him. Think of a soldier who is sent overseas to fight in a battle. That soldier is married and his wife, while he is fighting this battle overseas, takes the time to write out letters unto her husband, telling him about what's been going on in the home, about the children, family. Tells her husband how much she loves him and misses him and seeks his welfare while fighting overseas until he can return home. And then she mails these letters off and they go to her husband overseas. And what if then that man did not open? did not read, did not meditate upon what his wife had written for him. You would say, this man, I don't care what he says. I don't care how much he claims he loves his wife. This man does not truly love his wife. God has written you a letter. It's a book. God calls you to be soldiers. And God now calls you. Open up this letter, this book. Read it. Know me. As I am revealed in the Holy Scripture, And love me as the God of your salvation. Love. Love can be a hard thing for us to understand. Young people can have a romanticized view of love. Love that is filled with many strong emotions passions, excitement. Parents might encourage young adults who claim I am in love and I'm ready to get married. Parents might encourage that young adult to just slow down a little bit. Test your emotions with time. See how much you still love this individual next month, next year. Love, what is it? Love to God certainly includes 
emotions, strong emotions, a tender affection of the heart unto God, the desire, a yearning that rises up within one's heart and one's soul to be in the presence of God, a desire never to be separated from God, and yet love must be more than that. For how often is it not the case where we do not experience those strong yearnings and desires within our heart? Love is more than emotion, but love is a commitment unto someone. That's love being so committed unto someone else that you are willing to lay down your life for that individual. That's a standard of love set by Jesus Christ himself who loves the church with such a selfless love that he gave himself for the church. That's the idea here of love. Love God by denying yourself the desires of the flesh. Love God by living a life of devotion unto Him. No other gods but Jehovah. And then trust Him. That's required as well in this commandment. Know Him. Love Him. Trust Him. And sometimes it seems that this duty is, is the hardest duty that He gives us to do. It's one thing to read His Word. It's one thing to acknowledge His Word as truth. It's another thing to submit to His Word. But to trust Him. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And he says, trust me. When he puts a burden grievous to be borne in our lives, and he says, trust me and don't turn to any other gods, but trust me. The psalmist speaks of this trust that we are to have in Jehovah. Psalm 91 This is two and following. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Verse 4, He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings shalt thou trust. Trust. Oh, how God condescends to use the figure of a bird. A lowly bird. He says he's like that mother hen who takes the young chicks newly hatched out of the eggs and he draws those young vulnerable chicks underneath his wings. Objectively, the truth is He shall cover thee with his feathers. Subjectively, the truth is, under his wings shalt thou trust. If we struggle with trust, 
we go back to where we started. Knowing God. The more you know God, as He is revealed in the Scriptures, the more God will give you the grace to trust His care. All of this serves to show what is our need, namely, a Savior. For who of us can say, having heard the explanation of this first commandment, I've done it. I've kept it. I've had no other gods besides Jehovah God. I've put my trust in Him all the days of my life. I've not even been inclined to other gods, gods of materialism, popularity, self-care. Who can say that? But each of us, as we stand before the revelation of God to us, confesses, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of placing my trust in creatures, in people, in the inventions and the institutions of men instead of or besides placing my trust in Jehovah God. I'm guilty of not having that fervency that ought to characterize my love for Jehovah God. I'm guilty of a spiritual complacency instead of seeking Jehovah God through His own love letter that he's given to us in the Holy Scriptures. I've been distracted and have pursued countless other things besides Jehovah God. And so the only thing that we can do is plead then the grace and the love of Jehovah. And the love of God is this, that he provides for us a Savior. Behold, this Savior whom God gives unto us. A Savior who dwelt, as it were, under the shadow, the safety of Jehovah's wings. The Father who or the the Savior who was safe in his father's house. But that Savior then who left the safety of the covert of Jehovah's wings and who exposed himself unto the enemy, the Savior who battled long and who battled hard against that enemy, the Savior who, though he was tried and though he was tempted, yet he honored his Father all his life long, the Savior who kept the first commandment who knew his Father with a perfect love, the the Savior who trusted his Father, even when the will of his Father was that he go to the cross. The Savior who loved the Father and who in love for his Father loved the people whom the Father had taken into his home.
With this Savior, there is pardon. With this Savior, there is hope. And with this Savior, there is the desire to know, to love, and to trust. No other God besides Jehovah God. Amen. Let us pray. Father and our God, Thou who art the Sovereign, the Omniscient, the I Am that I Am, how amazing it is that Thou art the one who takes us under the shadow of Thy wings. In Thee we place all of our trust. Forgive us where we have broken this first commandment Comfort us with the Comforter. Strengthen us that we might be faithful. For Jesus' sake, amen.